Welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. Delighted to welcome you back to the show. We've had a bit of a break for a period as we focused on our annual conference, our football law conference, the launch of our online football law course, the launch of the fourth edition of the Sports Law Arbitration Moot. And to any of you who are budding sports lawyer students, you want to get involved in that, go to the website. We had to sift through over 350 applications for our mentoring scheme in which we've now paired up just under 50 people with leading sports lawyers from around the world um, to help them develop their career. Many of the applications that we received were excellent, but we only had a certain number of spaces. So, And I'm delighted to say we've restarted our webinar series as well for all the, those of you in our community. You like the webinars that we do? We've got a whole bunch of them coming on a weekly basis now. So delighted about that. Um, and of course, as we say, if you like the podcast, if you like what we do as Law in Sport and how we approach covering these issues, how we try to help inform and empower people to have a better understanding of the legal issues and developments in the world of sport, please do tell people about it. It's something that we thrive on. We've had over 100,000 downloads of the podcast, you know, which I think is pretty good for a, a sports law podcast. Um, and if you do like it, please help spread the word. It will be really appreciated. And I'm delighted to welcome our guests to restart our podcast series. Our guests for today's show are Luke Shalstrate, who is the founder and co-managing partner of Shalstrate Equine Lawyers. He's a vivid equestrian and owns a high-level dressage operation in the Netherlands, which produces several, or has produced, several Olympic horses. For decades, he's been involved in many equine cases for Various clients, including celebrities, high net worth individuals, um, many of their children in matters related to equine law. He is also joined on the podcast by Peter Warrenesniak, um, who is the co-managing partner of South Shady Equine Lawyers. He is a specialist advocate in international contract law, corporate law and sports law. And again, he's got extensive experience with dealing with anything related to equine law. Now... I'm also joined on a podcast by my good friend and editor, Manan Agarwal, um, who I'm delighted to welcome onto the show. So before we get into the podcast, um, the one thing I needed to bring to your attention, if this is an area that you like and enjoy and you want to learn more about, join us on the 11th of November in Amsterdam for a conference. It's the second International Equine Law Congress that's been organised by Schaustrate uh, Equine Law. Um, it looks to be a fan fantastic conference going to be touching on some of the most i guess technical um and interesting areas uh, in relation to equine law in relation to the science the development and breeding of horses um i think there's a lot within that because of the international law dimension of it that can be taken and applied to other areas of of, of sport um the non-equine sport um so if you're interested in that please join us for that that would be fantastic i'll be there uh, as well as potentially some of my colleagues and also I'm going to be in New York next week for a conference that we put together with Linklaters the sports and business conference in New York We've, it's going to be absolutely fabulous it's on the 25th of October it's a half day conference we've got people from uh, we've got Demora Smith who's the executive director of the National Football League Players Association who's going to give a keynote speech in a sort of interactive Q&A we've got uh Carrie Donaghy, who you know if you've attended any of our conferences before and heard her speak, from who's the motorsport legal director at Mercedes Formula One team. We've got uh, Katie Hoffman, who was 
um, formerly at NASCAR, is the general counsel of Open Doors. Um, we've got Heather McPhee, who is the associate general counsel of the NFL Players Association. We've got Sophie Gage, who's the business affairs counsel of the NFL Players Incorporated. Um, we've got Ed Vice, who's the executive president uh, for Fenway Sports Group. Anyway, the point is we've got some great conferences coming up. We'd love to see you there. You can go to the website, go to our events page. You can find out more. We'll put links below. Other than that, thank you so much for tuning in. And again, if you like what we do, please do tell people about it. Please do give us a thumbs up or give us a, you know some star ratings on iTunes or Spotify. Really appreciate it. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. First of all, could you give a background to those p- people that are not familiar with the equine industry, but particularly equine law, can you give a flavour of um, the type of, um, I guess, athletes that you're dealing with from the horse side, but also obviously from the human side, the trainers and and, and just that world? Because I think a lot of people haven't really got much of an insight into it because I believe that, you know, it's a relatively close and tight-knit community. Okay, that's, uh, thank you very much for the introduction, Sean. Um, First of all, the equine business is huge worldwide we can say that it's the second uh, sports uh, when it comes to financial volume uh, first of all football we all know that but secondly uh, equine business it's huge um, we represent all kind of stakeholders in the equine business we represent riders we represent owners we represent national federations but we also represent um, financial financial people that invest in the horse business. Um, Equine business and equine law as a term is not really illustrating what we do. Uh, What we do is represent those equine stakeholders in all aspects of their daily activities. Uh, What does it mean? We contract at buying and selling horses. We contract in the breeding operations. We, for instance, represent uh, stallion owners, mare owners, but also huge farms that contract riders, etc., etc. Part of that is completely focused now on the modern uh, breeding uh, possibility called ICSI. In the old days, you had a mare and a stallion, and they came together, and 11 months later, you would have a fall. Now, they don't meet anymore. Uh, Semen is taken out of the stallion. It's brought to a laboratory, and one egg of a mare is is transported, and it comes into um, an embryo and then replanted in a not original man but i realize look that maybe okay. not everybody knows uh, you know from the uh, from the audience what we basically mean so just for your understanding sean and uh, manan so the icsi or xcs look say it stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection and it's a technique known with the humans for some period of time it was developed for the first time in the 1990s in um, in belgium for the treatment of male infertility but it is being more and more popular now these days in horse business as well, because it gives you unlimited uh, reproductive possibilities. You know, like imagine with one straw, you can produce maybe 30 or 40 embryos of the high level, the best uh, stallions in the world. It's like having the best football player in the team and you want to buy and sell it. 
You can multiply it. Yes, but when you have the best mare stallion, you can have 100 or 200 of them. Given the, I'm presuming, quite large sums of money uh, people are paying for uh, these horses, there's quite a lot of uh, dispute work that goes on around this. Um, so, so in terms of, and as well, to give some background, you mentioned it was you know second by volume in terms of uh, in terms of business. In terms of then, how many horses are bred each year, and how many are, are bought and sold roughly? Do you have any sort of gauge? No, I don't have. I can't give you an estimate of that. You know, um, um, it's not about volume. It's not. It's not about the volume of the breeding operations. It's more about the volume of the potential of buyers and sports competitors. But to get back on track, we were discussing what we are doing, and then I I tried to explain, and I gave you a few examples like uh, contracting on horses. But before buying and selling, we do the due diligence. We do um, contract, we negotiate, but we also employ veterinarians to check on the horses' well-beings that horses are to be bought. Then after the deals have been done and the horses have been sold, we do a lot of litigation um, on behalf of buyers or sellers that come to the conclusion that what they bought is not what they expected. And given the consumer protection in Europe, this is quite a job we do in our firm. Also, and that's very interesting, the family law activities. We represent more and more equine-oriented families from the northern Europe, Scandinavian countries, southern Europe, but also Japan, and, and of United course, States. the United States. Uh, families that, that do want to have uh, an entity in Europe they do want to buy their stud farm or breeding operation and to develop sport horses together with their riders. And that means a lot of due diligence, a lot of contracting. Mm -hmm. um, and all these topics that I have been discussing with you, they need special experience and special knowledge on um, the law that is relevant and the treaties between the countries that are relevant in this business. And of course, and that's the reason why we met Sean, pure sports law. We were happy to represent people that were not happy with them, uh, the way uh, the national federations or even FEI was treating them, um, clients that um, were accused of doping. And so, to, just, so just, 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 just for background again, for those people that aren't familiar, FEI, obviously the Federation Equestrian Internationale, just so that the governing body, the international governing body for, for equine sports. So I continue. I just wanted to say that just because when people are listening, they'll I, say FEI and they may not, may not pronounce it. It's perfect for you to interrupt us because this is what happens with you if you're working in an issue. You always think people know, but they don't. It's not likely. So, okay, but to get an end to my introduction, um, we represent people in pure disciplinary cases and doping cases as well. We also are very occupied in assisting people when they're not selected to go to the Olympics or not selected to go to the World Championships. Um, as a matter of fact, we have been involved in some disputes that were pending uh, in the United Kingdom where um, one of our clients was not selected as a show jumper to go to the United States or to the uh, last Olympics. So in Tokyo, yes. uh, it was Tokyo. So we have a huge variety on activities, but the 
the general interest is always the horse. That's the basic thing. And we are aware about the horse. I can speak for myself that I'm very much into the business. So people always call me by my given name instead of Mr. Schelstrate. <laughs> it's nice. And that makes it very easy to discuss. You have calls 24 hour a day. And and what would you say is your split then between all these different areas that you're in? What What's the kind of, um, what's the areas that sort of occupy the most? Because I'd imagine obviously the selection disputes are more around sort of major competitions and so they'd be more sporadic. What's the sort of split? What do you think? So, well, okay, looking back in the past, we, you know, the majority of, of the things we've been dealing with concerned litigation. So basically disputes between seller and owner, co-owners, yes. whatever. But um, uh, I think that the, that it shifted a little bit. And also yes. in connection with the with Brexit, um, we see more and more advisory services being provided to people who, for instance, come from the United States. And in the first instance, in the past, they would have gone to the United Kingdom because it was there, you know, some kind of a gate to the European Union. And now they come to the Netherlands and the yes. Netherlands is really increasing yes. in, in, in that sense uh, as well. So we are incorporating companies for those people. We are purchasing real estate and, and immigration. The, yes. And providing immigration because yes. of the because you had the reputation in the market people are coming to you from that work and then so now there's obviously i would imagine quite a high level of activity in that regards as people are trying to work out what they would do and then on the on the so then you have the sort of the due do, do diligence buying and then the litigation side in terms of how, what was the kind of split on that how does that sort of work out and again is that is is the buying seasonal no the the, the buying is um 24 months a year um, and it's amazing for us to experience that we have now had several economic terrible periods the last one we all know that was the COVID uh, period but still the number of deals increased enormously and um, we can say that we do a lot of due diligence but we do still more litigating on deals that didn't uh, perform as they should have and that means that still a lot of work to be done um, especially the buying parties should invest more time and energy in the due diligence themselves so can we come on to that then so so in terms of how would it, when you're looking at due diligence obviously you said you're being in the veterinarians to look at the, the the horse itself what other sort of forms of due diligence because obviously say for example in football at the moment uh, due diligence comes up all the time around owners and directors tests and you know who, who's an investing party an acquiring party uh, an owner um how does that work because i believe in, in this all the equine space as well with purchasers and again yes. there's a, sometimes there's very complex uh, financial structures in place yeah the financial part is not that difficult uh, i must say um because part of the deal the, the the price to be paid is not often an issue it's not about the money it's about the suitability of the horse to the rider vice versa and then it comes into our mind that it should be accompanied better by trainers and uh, specialized people that need to help the buying parties. You know, many uh, people buy horses like Ferraris, but they're not used to ride even a Volvo. So that means 
that when it comes to conformity, work needs to be done. Yeah. And we, when we represent buyers, we know that, and they don't like us to, but we ask more and more guarantees and presentations and warranties from sellers' part. Um, on the other hand, I must say that that uh, actually the riders are getting more and more professional, but, but buying and selling is still very difficult. You can say, I have this Ferrari, and I have another one with 500 more horsepower. But a horse, to try it yourselves, how can you ride? What should you feel to make it a match with you? And that needs more juridical attention at the moment. But that's, that's of course, uh, Sean, just to interrupt you, that's the material part. But of course, as you say, I mean, a lot of money is involved. And I agree with Luke, the money is not the problem for people who buy those horses. But of course, we are bound by um, financial supervision acts of the European Union. So we also need to check the provenance also for the benefit of the seller and the buyer, because um, it's not only about buying and selling, but also about tax implications and, and so on. And, and tax authorities have been targeting for a, some period of time the equestrian business in, in, in terms of, you know, checking where the money is coming from and yeah. so on and so on. So it's also one of the service, services that we provide to our clients to ensure that they remain compliant with yes. what is necessary in the European Union. Compliance is one of our topics. And, and I must say, very important issue now, actually, is the VAT rate. Um, European Union has now uh, implemented, is active on implementing a new rule uh, in which it's organized that the VAT rate gets down from an average of 21 to 9% in horse business. But that's very important. It's very important. We have Americans in Europe that invest between 10 and 20 million annually on new horses. If they have to pay 9% on top or 21% on top, that makes a huge difference. Yeah, and the the V eight the, the the tax issues are always a big issue. Both trying to get uh, trying to get clarity in all sports, it seems is difficult. So, Manan, you had a question. Yeah. So, just to take you back, Luke, to when you were discussing about certain provisions in your contract when you're buying and selling horses. So, obviously, you have a regular sale of goods contract when you're just selling normal goods. But how different? is a contract for buying and selling horses because over here there's a living living being that's been transacted so is there any particular difference that comes through yeah when you compare the horse as a living being to let's say a huge car or something like that like a general yeah. yes yeah yes okay um we have to 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 divide your question into two parts first of all when it's a sale and purchase between a professional and a buying consumer then the directive of the European Union implements that there is a, a kind of guarantee in favor of uh, the consumer buyer. Um, and then the seller is always very frustrated if at the end of that guarantee period, the buyer says, I have a defect. The horse is not jumping anymore. And then the buyer, the seller has to prove that um, uh, the defect was not there prior to the sale. Um, these sellers always ask us, can you make an optimum contract for this to avoid the risk? Now, we cannot because basically this is um, a directive you cannot differ from. It's in protecting, it's protecting the consumer it's, buyer. Yeah. But when, you, when it comes to the uh, buying and selling of horses between professionals, you can 
disclose warranties. You can disclose guarantees and even CISC, a very important international treaty that is very relevant in our business. It protects us in the same way as it would protect buying, selling parties when it comes to cars or other vehicles or other goods. But, yes, but also, Manan, it's also very often it's a matter of negotiation because you can imagine I have this client who is selling a very expensive show jumper and the veterinarian says, oh, I see a finding on a navicular bone. It's very terrible, you know. You need to ask a guarantee from, uh, from my client. And then I discuss it with my client and, and he tells me, okay, I mean, I've never had a problem with this navicular yes. bone. I'm willing to give him a six months guarantee that if something goes wrong, I'm going to take the horse back as long as he's treating the horse with my veterinarian and so on and so on. So, you know, there is no one standard deal, I would say. No, no there is uh, no standard. But we, we, we never sell a standard contract because it's yeah. always different. When agents come in, when co-owners come in, yeah. when uh, uh, particular countries come in, but between professionals, we would prefer to agree on applicable law, the Swiss law, which is very protective for the seller. Yes. And maybe just to make one remark, Luke was just mentioning the European uh, uh, regulation directives on consumer protection. So in our system, if there is something for the consumer protection, it's mandatory law. So you cannot exclude it by contract. You know. So even if I make a contract that says something totally else to the uh, to the code, still the code applies. Yes, it's not valid. Yes. Such a... And and what are the agents like that operate in this space? Like, are they, uh, 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 is it is it like football agency where you have some that are more, um, I say, credible than others and more reliable? At first impression, I would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a matter of civilization. Um, when we developed this niche, niche 20 years ago, uh, we found out that it was a jungle. There were no regulations, there was no law, there was no case law, no jurisprudence on the positions of these commissioners or agents. But they took advantage of that. And in many files, we concluded that it was almost criminal what they were doing. Representing the seller or the buyer that the seller wanted 1 million, what in fact was 200,000, those um, situations they came by on a weekly basis. But when we started working on this, we created a lot of case law in the most important uh, European equine countries. And at the same time, legislations changed. Also in the United States, especially in the United States, there are in many uh, parts very detailed um, uh, paragraphs, rules on the positions of commissioners. There is even a separate uh, bill in Florida, which is like the main equine, equine state, at least for our disciplines, yes, yes. which says that if there is a um, an agency involved, it must be agreed in writing up front by all parties. <laughs> so yes. it was in the past, it was also the reason that many Americans came to Europe and uh, started buying horses here because it was a very lucrative business for the trainer or the commissioner. Yeah, but can you imagine yeah. the following file? The following case that we have been dealing with, and we are now at the latest part of the situation, our client was an international dressage rider from Sweden. She bought an expensive dressage horse. Her trainer encouraged her to buy another horse, and he introduced her to the horse, 
And her trainer, he said to her, I don't need any commission fee because I like you, I like your family, and you already pay me for the monthly uh, disbursements and so on. So she bought that horse. After a few weeks, she found out that the horse was crap. He was lame. He was not performing. And then we started litigating on this topic, on the, the malpresentation, on the soundness of the horse and the nonconformity. But um, when this litigation made progress, we found out that her trainer, he took a part of that. So the financial claim that we confronted the seller with was more than two million. So we were litigating in Germany and in first instance, um, our claim was awarded and everybody had to refund its part. Then they all, including the trainer, they appealed. And in appeal, uh, the Oberlandesgericht has ruled that because of the fact that this trainer did not disclose his piece of the cake, not representing her, a breach on the fiduciary duties from him towards her, the Oberlandesgericht has ruled that he has to compensate her for the complete investment. So instead of the about 400,000 uh, commission yeah. fee to be paid back, he had to pay back more than 2 million. So I don't think you have ever seen this in football. Now we are dealing, we are now dealing on a file, and I think we will follow up this with um, Law and Sports. Uh, we are dealing on a file which we are now exploring that an agent who was allowed to sell an expensive horse, let's say for about 10 million, that he represented that the selling price was 10 million, that we found out, my client found out that it was more than 14 million. Um, this could lead to a claim for this 14 million because it implies that the complete contract is no, invalid. So this is, and this is typical in horse business. It gets emotional. People, if they find out that they are being taken advantage of, it's like a divorce or even worse. They go for the kill. They want everything set back as it was to, to take away the fraudulent uh, advantages of the agents. So, but there is more and more regulation and uh, horse business in the end gets more transparent also gets more um, of a higher standard when it comes to moral. Uh, and that's also because more and more participants know their way. And in the old days, you went to a train, oh, your girl will go to the Olympics with that horse. Believe me, he has all in it. And if not, and I, will, I, if I, not I will find you an Olympic horse. Yeah, but, <laughs> what can I do? Yeah, but... It's, this is so common across sport, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, some people are just overly enthusiastic, some people are manipulative. The interesting thing here is, though, that I think you mentioned, and I think it was years ago, I think it was a gentleman who, um, a friend of ours, uh, Andrew Nixon, um, who wrote a piece for us actually on fiduciary duties of agents in football, because, again, it was overlooked in terms of typically people went through the football channels rather than through the, um, the domestic courts. I think it's, yeah, definitely worth looking at again. 
I'll have to re recap and speak to smarter people than myself <laughs> in our community uh, and the actual experts look into it. But it's definitely worth looking at, yeah, once again, because that's one of their, I guess, one of the tensions, isn't it, with with sports governing bodies always is they want to try and keep as many things in house as possible, but also for for and also because say FIFA with regulation of agents and re-regulate agencies that hopefully because of the leverage points they can actually make things up in a bit quicker and, and hopefully deal with some resolutions in terms of when you're in a in a nutshell because there's so much in this fundamentally what have been the sort of the key changes you've seen over the over the years in the sector so we've seen obviously you said the participants are much more sophisticated than they used to be more knowledgeable about their legal rights um you've seen new laws come into place which are again making the um sector more professionalized and more transparent you've had brexit so it's great for you guys in the netherlands <laughs> bringing loads of business your way what other have you seen anything else that's sort of really that you would say is a big you know describes a change yeah the business gets more mature the business gets more mature on the other hand what we have a little we, we don't have problem with the fact that the money is getting bigger uh, but it's more and more difficult for the amateurs to participate in these sports and to 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 obtain a position. And we do see that because of the success of the equine sports and the equine business, the growth, the basic growth, is um, is not really big anymore. The number of uh, participants. Uh, in the Netherlands, in Germany, and in Belgium, and comes to the local, the local competitions, um, they are decreasing, and that's worrying me a little bit. And also, that's a side effect. But I illustrating this because I have a dual position. I'm an equine lawyer, but I'm also uh, a norm fan and dressage horses, and I build them together with uh, my team. But I do see that. Um, as money comes in, people buy more and more ready to go on horses and they don't invest sufficiently in young potential horses, meaning that the number of people that can develop the horses is decreasing as well. So that's a huge potential for, for um, uh, people that do know how to develop horses, but I do see that and, it's not being so paid the, for. Only so that's the path the so we were describing there would be the equivalent of um, saying the football, European football model anyway, essentially what you're seeing is academies, you know, being less important, people just buying in essentially would be the equivalent of players. Therefore, you're losing all the coaching opportunities, the um, the training opportunities for these amateur riders to be part of that part of that process and go up the ladder. How do you think that gets fixed? What's the what's the solution to that in your in your Yes, but it's it's something that you do see in a complete society nowadays. People need to have it now and not tomorrow. They want to consume now and not tomorrow. And then when it's not acceptable, they throw it away. Like if the horse is not really what they expected, they don't work with the horse, they throw it away, they buy a new one. This is a black or white approach from my part. Uh, but I hope that that also the FEI will take a role in this. Because um, many competitors, they do everything to compete at the highest level as often possible. But a horse is not a machine. You cannot do too many competitions a month or a year. And that leaves 
in the end, and I hope that will change in four or five years, ultimately starting from today, that we do understand that the horse is getting to be a more and more uh, important part of the play that we are having here. Uh, the horse is the most important um, aspect of the complete business, and we do have to, to respect the well-being of the horse. And if we understand that, we will approach it differently, and then we will also uh, then we will be able to invest at a, at a more mature level in young horses, in people that train them, to pay them and to compensate them correctly. You know, until five, six years ago, the young kids that were working at, 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 at um, uh, breeding operations or stallion operations or sports tables, they didn't even get a normal wage. They were working seven days a week, 10 hours a day without comp proper compensation. You can now already feel that that is changing. The owners need the team. They and need the, the knowledge team as well. and the knowledge. And, uh, yeah. you know, you can't only look at the top. You can only create the top when you start at, a, at, at the, the lowest basis, level, yeah. at the base. So UEFA have put out their updated um, club licensing uh, and sustainability uh, regulations. And in there, they've basically increased the number of mandatory, if you're going to compete in UEFA competitions, mandatory academy teams that you must have. So I think it's gone up to five now. Um, could you see the FAI saying, having sort of, and I haven't looked at the FAI's regulations, but having similar requirements that going forward, if you're going to participate in FAI events, you need to make sure that you are and insisting that people are investing in this, in the sort of what we you consider to be the group. Uh, the FEI, no, the FEI, there is a possibility for the FEI, but they're not going to interfere with that. Uh, when you address the FEI with a request or a claim that is not completely their core business, they, will, they won't do it. But basically, the FEI will understand that the horse welfare needs protection. That's what they say, at least in their statutes, of course, right? Yes. The horse welfare is the paramount of the FEI, they say. But I, I think, and I agree with Luke, there must be done more yes. in, in the practical terms to achieve that goal, you know, than just putting it on paper. And... It, it would seem, it would seem, uh, one thing I was going to say is that maybe there's, and again, this is for, I guess, a wider, an ongoing conversation that we'll look into. Um, the ESG, the focus on environmental social governance, may force the FEI to have to do more on this area because if people, if people like us and others start to focus on this, and maybe they are in the background having these discussions, we don't know, maybe we'll speak to them to find out, but maybe that will encourage them because particularly from the, obviously the compelling arguments you're putting forward on the, just on that, on the horse welfare, that is uh, significant enough that it, it should evoke more action. Yes. FEI is really terrified to lose the Olympic status as a sport. So they need to move on. And uh, we had some terrible um, cases the last 12 months, uh, also in Germany, a very important rider. Um, people took pictures of him when he was uh, training show jumpers on a way, in a way that one could say this is not in line with the horse welfare statutes. Uh, so, but the FEI is very keen on doping and they do everything within their power, uh, but they should implement more regulations when it comes to the number of competitions and how to control the horse's welfare in an objective way. There are, there is lots of work to do.
not only because otherwise they can lose their Olympic uh, position, but also if you don't do this, it could uh, lead to the end of the sports one day. Yeah, there's enough uh, bad publicity by this PETA organization. I mean, I'm sure you heard about it. It's, uh, people for ethical treatment of uh, animals that may sometimes misunderstand what is really going on in the sport, but still they, they, they draw a lot of publicity and attention. In, 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 this has been a big topic in horse racing in recent, like just you know, domestically and in, in Ireland. This has been a, a huge issue here, with, with particularly with photos being taken and, and distributed and stuff like that. that have led to trainers being banned and others, yeah. But that's completely correct. People should, and if you have good regulations and if you have um, people that, that stick to the regulations and that they are in control with a good due process model, then you can say to everybody, we do whatever is in the power and it's effective. But it's not only the horse welfare, it's also the human welfare that you are a little bit worried about. What do I mean? I mean the following. Um, FEI is the governing body. There's only one. You have the national federations, but the, the riders itself as individuals, they don't have that many rights. If they ask for something, they always, always walk up to the wall. They say, okay, we can't do this for you. Uh, we cannot select you. Then the rider says, okay, I go to the FEI tribunal and then I go to CAS. At CAS, he has to pay 8,000 or 24,000 euro to have the case dealt with. Now, um, due process in general, when it comes to, to the position of the rider, it needs a lot of attention as well. There should be better regulations a better dispute resolution, a resolution possibility as we have now at the moment. And so that's really interesting because the, you know, we've seen this, you know, be an argument across team sports, but Olympic, other Olympic sports where the argument around access to justice, and we're seeing now more pro bono initiatives being, being, being launched, but this um, argument that, that, you know, the inequality of arms between two the two parties is so great that it really does put, um, essentially, it's almost just a procedural walkthrough that's being done rather than a, a genuine hearing of both sides. Um, one would assume, from my side at least, uh, uh, naively before we'd spoken, I would have assu assumed the majority of athletes, uh, human athletes, in uh, the riders in, in equine sports were so financially well off that they wouldn't find that prohibitive. But I, I understand from my previous conversation and from today that that's clearly not the case. I, I cannot say it's not the case. I can say it's not always the case. And of and course, we we mean you know not not the disciplinary proceedings, but any regulatory matter you might think of. Yes, where the, those uh, arbitration costs, especially for the for the arbitrators, yes. are, are really really high, and they are and they are a barrier for people to to come forward because of course. Yeah, but the, also not being public hearings. Yes. Uh, now this is from the old days. A yes. hearing not being public. What does that mean? What does this bring to, to everybody? And there is no really, there's not a real possibility for a stakeholder. Um, we have had cases in which uh, our client was acting against a person and uh, she asked to the FBI to interfere and the FBI refused. But when you see the facts in this file, 
that and and then the conclusion that the RVI didn't want to interfere. This is really amazing. This is really amazing, and um, there should be more control on that. But the way the tribunal is organized and the difficulty to go to CAS, they worry us a lot. More from a professional um, view, uh, we we believe in checks and balances in due process and fair trial is very important for us. And so, so interesting, right? Because we talked, so we started the interview, we're talking about how big the business is. And then when we get down to it from a sporting perspective, we're still dealing with a lot of the same old issues um, with, with like in football and other sports where the money's in, increasing always, but not necessarily um, the infrastructure um, that the, the upholds the, the well running of the sector. No doubt it's a continual challenge for these governing bodies because you know obviously for a lot of the people working in these federations and others they've they are in those bodies that are still evolving quite rapidly so they've got a lot of fires they're trying to put out at one point in time so it almost seems inevitable that we're going to end up with these situations um can i ask do the riders have an association and do they do they talk to other athletes uh because it would seem to me that obviously if the riders were could be organized um that and have a, a central voice basically yeah, basically there is a rider organization, yes, uh, but uh, it only concentrates, I think, one hundred uh, uh, top one hundred yes. uh, uh, riders. Yes. It's in not show a big jumping. group, yes. so it's not like I think no. really representative. They are the really no. the best. Yeah, could be. Yeah, you remember, Sean, that this topic is one of the reasons that we invited um, Law and Sports to organize a nice meeting in October in London to discuss the due process fair trial principles in um, sports dispute. Uh, we, we can discuss this further. And that also brings us a good thing, is that we have decided to come to England. Um, as a law firm, you know, we want to have <laughs> London, and um, so then we can commute faster <laughs> with you. <laughs> as somebody who wants to get into this field into equine law what what would you recommend is required just a knowledge of the law or the industry or specific knowledge about horses we have seen many law firms honorable law firms opening an equine division and two three years later they vanished um you need to know about the topics um you need to have legal sufficient legal knowledge but also you need to talk the language you know if a client comes to you because you're a specialist and he, he will find out in two minutes whether you're experienced or not so if you want to to to, to be an equine lawyer the best thing you can do is join a firm that's already there and start working there and make a choice on what you do you will understand that all these topics that we have been discussing, uh, of course, we know about the topics, but in our firm, we have specialists. And also we employ from outside the firm specialists when we need them. We cannot be on top of all the issues. You can't know it all now. But if you know how to get it, that's an important conclusion. Most lawyers never understand that there's a limited knowledge. So, but one day you find out that you have a limited knowledge, then you will be very efficient for your clients. So, but for that lawyer, it's a good idea to start joining or working for a firm that's already there. 
to get the experience. And you don't have to be a rider. It, in my personal opinion, you're better not a rider. Because if you're a rider or a stakeholder, you have your own uh, theories and your own assumptions. But in, in our business, it's always different from what you thought. So, um, and you have to turn the page now and then. So yeah. it's better uh, not to be a rider, but a damn good lawyer. They have a good um, degree and an interest. Yes, and, and I think the interest is the most important yes. because everybody has some kind of a legal know-how. But the question is, do I really want to get to the, you know, to the bottom of it? Do I yes. want to know more about it? And uh, and that's the way to go forward: to speak to your client and to yes. speak to the stakeholders uh, and to the to the experts. And yes, then you get going. I think. But the business is good. It's interesting. It's always international. You always meet um, uh, very interesting clients, uh, the top of the bill clients, uh, but they expect a lot of you. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to defend your name, if you want to defend your name, you have to do it right. Yes, but maybe one one thing we didn't discuss, Luke, is why the Netherlands? Because the Netherlands is really the mecca of of the equestrian sports yes. worldwide, and that's why we are also based in the Netherlands. Yeah, just yeah. to compare, to compare to to have horses here stabled and trained, it costs thirty percent or forty percent of what it would cost in in non equine countries or territories like the USA or Japan. And also, you can do competition here on a daily basis. Where can you do that? And if you want to go to Belgium, it's just ten minutes. If you want to compete in Germany, it's ten minutes. But if I now have to compete again in the UK. I cannot, I cannot even drive there with my own lorry. <laughs> I need a permit. And my lorry has to be checked upon as well. It's getting very difficult. Yeah, don't, don't, don't get me started on all the Brexit stuff again. You'll get me going. You'll, you'll, you'll get me going. It's, it's frustrating. Um, guys, um, first of all, thank you for shedding light on this. It's absolutely fascinating. I, you know, I think I told you, um, I studied sports science and I remember one of my lecturers saying, if you want to work with the best athletes in the world, work with horses. And it was like they are the best equipped, the most resourced, the like truly that's the best athletes in the world and given the money uh, that goes into the into these um, animals uh, to perform well. Um, but it brings up, like with all areas that we're working, some very interesting regulatory, legal and commercial issues, as you were describing, that, that, that come up, which I think is very interesting and i remember also from a from a horse racing perspective being lambasted by a gentleman by the name of oliver codrington who's on our advisory board who was at the bha for overlooking some of the really important horse racing cases that have taken place in shaped sports law in the uk so again i think it's some an area that we need to do better at giving it more profile which hopefully with you guys we will do um it's absolutely fascinating Thank you for giving up your time. Manan, thank you as always for being the co-host. We appreciate it. Very much looking forward to doing more of you on this uh, topic. As I said, we're penciling in October to try and do something to look at sort of more on the sort of dispute resolution side of things, um, which will be no doubt fascinating, not only for people interested in equine law, but also for those not, because I think as always, it's the comp compare and contrast to other systems that gives you a, a new vantage point to look at some of the issues that we're currently dealing with in other areas. Um, other than that, if you're tuning into the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to know more from the guys, please do get in contact with Luke or Peter. Um, please do reach out to them. 
If you like the podcast, if you've learned something, please do share it with other people, whether you do it privately or publicly on your social media channels. It doesn't really matter. The main part is that you share this information uh, and be generous with doing so. So other than that, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, uh, wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, for all the latest legal issues from the world of sports, go to lawandsport.com and follow us on all the social media channels. Other than that, have a great day.